Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. Lucy Dallas is here again this week, weighed down by the relaunch of our new website, but being pluckily northern about it. Lucy? Hello. Hello. How are you doing? Like Atlas? Like Atlas? Yeah. Not really. Well, Having a better time than Atlas. Yeah, it didn't turn out well for Atlas. No, it didn't. From, I'm going to know no. memory. So Scratch we, that. We've redesigned the paper. And we've got the same, which is in shops and in people's hands this week, mm-hmm. but we are the beginning to do a beta version of your website. Yes, we are. My, my website. It's your website. Nobody else can look at it. It's just mine. No, we Particularly are doing Particularly if it. it goes slowly at this stage, it's your website. <laughs> if it starts to, to really ramp up in terms of the redesign, it'll, be, it'll become all our websites. It's, it's, a, it's very much a joint project. Yeah, yeah. We're, no, we're starting to roll it out this week and it will have new added wonderful things every week I think yeah until it becomes a sort of very beautiful very functional thing yeah beauty and functionality that's what we're all about it's the dream isn't it so you really should be subscribing to the new TLS if you get a paper version it's already redesigned if you get a digital version in the next couple of weeks it's going to look really lovely I promise you can get a cheap subscription actually if you live in the USA or Canada go to podcast.the-tls.com and if you live anywhere else including the UK then go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod 19 five pounds or five dollars for five issues i really hope you like what we've done with it and coming up on this week's old look new look show for the new look tls we've launched a book imprint as well as doing all this with two books one is by thriller writer lee child a non-fiction account of the development of the hero and the other is a collection of essays by tls veteran Virginia Woolf. We'll talk to the editor of the book series, Ros Deneen, and our literary editor, Michael Keynes, about Virginia Woolf in the TLS. Woolf once wrote an essay in the TLS about George Eliot, and we've used that as the beginning of our appreciation of Eliot, who would be 200 next week. We're also running a lecture by Professor Rosemary Ashton about Eliot's philosophy, and she'll be in the studio to discuss the career of this great figure. And talking of great figures, how about the boss? Bruce Springsteen, of course. Karen Rose will be on the line to testify to his universal appeal. (laughs) 
Virginia Woolf once wrote this. Two things I mean to do when the long, dark evenings come. To write on the spur of the moment, as now, lots of little poems as they may come in handy. And to collect, even bind together, my innumerable TLS notes. To consider them as material for some kind of critical book. Quotations, comments, ranging all through literature as I've read it and noted it during the past 20 years. Well, it may have taken us 80 years, but we've obliged her as we're publishing this month a book called Genius and Ink, Virginia Woolf on How to Read, a collection of Woolf's writing on Bronte and Eliot, James and Conrad and so on. It has a preface from Ali Smith, who calls Woolf a writer for whom everything is invested with life and death and the imagination it takes to read and write both. And an introduction from Bloomsbury expert Francesca Wade, who calls Woolf's reviews works of literature worth reading and rereading in themselves. So what does the book show us about Wolf the writer and reader? Literary editor Michael the Dr Keynes, who helped shape this collection, and features editor Ros Deneen, the editor of TLS Books, are here to talk it over. Hello. 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 And Ros is throwing coffee all over the place as Sorry. well. Sorry. And actually staining Michael's <laughs> copy of our brand new book. <laughs> Let's talk about um, what it's like to read Virginia Woolf today. You've both read all of these essays more than once. What's it like? How have they aged? How do you feel when, when you read them? Do they, do they feel of their time or, or a little more timeless than that? They do feel of their time. It's quite strange. They are of their age. Obviously, she is writing about, sometimes about writers we just think of as classics of English literature. But they are living and working and and dying in her lifetime. One of the things that Francesca Wade mentions in her introduction is that there's a sort of long gestated piece about Thomas Hardy that Bruce Richmond, her editor at the TLS, sort of asks her to write well before Hardy dies. You know, it's years in the making, 10 years in the making, I think, uh, Francesca Wade says. But basically it's asking her to think constantly about Hardy, his place in the canon, to reread his books. And so you can sort of see that coming to fruition when the piece finally appears in 1928 after Hardy's death. So on the one hand, they're they're of their time. But to me, at least, I've completely ready, delighted to be contradicted. There is something quite fresh, exciting about them. They're very easy reading, I think. Um, there's something enjoyably um, sort of largo about the pace in which she expounds a point. Absolutely. I think they are... Com- they feel so fresh still. Even so. though I've read them now... Too many times. Loads of times. <laughs> there's a line um, in one of them. She's talking about Elizabethan playwrights. Yeah. And she talks about them and she says witnessing the Elizabethan plays it's as if thought plunged into a sea of words and came up dripping which is amazing yeah but it's that is a similar experience to reading really? her, reading these essays and it seems she was allowed to to sort of stretch out a little bit you know she's allowed to build metaphors she's allowed to have style there's a style in all of this isn't there absolutely which yeah. we try not to crash out of I mean there's a, there's a tension when you're when you're running a weekly magazine to try and make everything fit and work and it can crush style a bit can't it yeah and it seems to me that the story of the relationship is that wolf um, has only really just started out as a professional writer when she meets bruce richmond who had wanted her father leslie stephen to write for for the tls and it's a year after um leslie stephen died um, who had taught her she basically had an Cambridge Don on tap to walk with and talk about books constantly and his guiding lesson about reading was you know never never pretend to admire something you don't admire always follow your own opinion you can see that coming through in that work and although she wrote hundreds of pieces um, particularly over the first two decades I think she writes something like maybe 90 odd pieces in the first decade and then maybe 140 the second decade and then it tails off a bit after that but over that she's writing short pieces as well but I think there's a relationship of trust there yeah. so that what you're describing where um, 
she gets to stretch out and he trusts her to write the piece about Conrad or the piece about George Eliot's centenary is partly, you know, is, is um, one of the benefits of having that kind of long-term editorial, good editorial relationship. It feels very much like the kind of thing we have now. Like you tend to, you know, you might start someone off on a short book and if they do a brilliant <laughs> job, you give them some more and you think, oh, great, they're reliable. And then you throw things at them and then after a bit, they're, you know, you say, let's get them to write this mm. great book. Do piece. you or do you keep them down? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's you, that's, that's <laughs> just you, that's, that's yeah, just no, you, Michael. Just me, just me. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. But she turns out to be, I mean, that's the amazing thing, that she t- they have that relationship and she turns out to be one of the great writers of the 20th century that they have that relationship with. And what struck me about reading Francesca Wade's piece was actually being a TLS writer, amazingly, was important to her development as a writer, mm-hmm. not only in terms of style and what she's thinking about, but this notion of living by your pen. There's that bit where the first check she gets is delivered with the breakfast things and she says, now we are free mm-hmm. because she shows she can do it. And, you know, for the person who then writes a room of her own, the idea of you needing this freedom, this space to be a, a woman writer, it's clear she kind of got that to whatever extent at the TLS. And there's something as well in Francesca's Wade piece um, about the deadlines that she had to work to and how that actually enables you to just get it out there because she had to write these TLS pieces she had to complete the thoughts, complete the work, and that fed into her her longer books later on. I'm very fond of the idea of deadlines being a spur of creativity. Mm-hmm. The idea that Shakespeare was Shakespeare because he was a hack. That he could have been off in an ivory tower producing a play every five years, you know, every word laboured over, but the the brilliance of Shakespeare was that he was writing to a commercial deadline. He had to make these plays. He had to keep writing them, keep writing and, and writing them. It was quite them. practical, wasn't it? Because he knew who he was writing for and, and what become, audience. And, and there is an element of that, isn't there? Where, where the genius and the hack is how I always consider Shakespeare together. And clearly, she was moving in rarefied circles, I presume, relatively early anyway, wasn't she, Wolf? I mean, she was... When did the Bloomsbury set become the Bloomsbury set? The period when she starts writing for the TLS is also the period when old Bloomsbury, as it's sometimes called, started to be formed um, around the sort of Stephen family. When they moved from Kensington after her father's death and her mother was already dead and Stella Duckworth was already dead, so that her old life was, had sort of fallen apart and she and her family were, were remaking it. So it is this time of extraordinary change and they are meeting these extraordinary... This is the time of meeting Strachey and J.M. Keynes. So it's the beginnings. It's the beginnings of, of Bloomsbury as, as, as we think of it. But that, that pre-war decade has got a very distinct sort of flavour of its own. And they're being daring and they're, they're rejecting sort of um, tea table talk, although they're very good at it, and sort of going out in society as their, their sort of stepbrothers wanted them to do. That's actually reminded me of something that's not in this collection because there are so many short reviews she wrote. But I love to rescue these things from these short reviews she wrote. And of course she knew Rupert Brooke and she sort of swam in the river at Grantchester with him, uh, as you do. Yeah. And um, But she said something about him. A lot, a lot of time you're reading these reviews and there's there's something that, uh, or, or essays, and Francesca Reed, I think quite rightly says you can read them in their own right and they're great and they should be read in their own right. But it's every now and again you think, oh, that comes back to something in her own work. And I feel that she's there's a little bit of a sort of meta-commentary going on. She's always thinking about how you think about 
about books. And when it comes to Rupert Brooke, of course, she's writing about him anonymously, but you still feel that she knows him really well. And she says that he's talking about all the way he reads. His judgments were not only very definite, but had a freedom and a reality, which marked the criticism of those who were themselves working in the same art. You felt that to him literature was not dead nor of the past, but a thing now in process of construction by people of many of whom were his friends. And that knowledge, skill and above all unceasing hard work were required of those who attempt to make it. To work hard, much harder than most writers think is necessary was an injunction of his that remains in memory from a chaos of such discussions. I mean, so much of that seems to apply to the way that she relished, as you say, having a deadline, getting a book, writing and rewriting it that week. And that's what led to her. And where did she get the confidence from? Because it strikes me that before she was, and it's anonymous anyway, but before she was a big-name novelist, she was casting confident assertions about other... And they, these were these were the titans of the age she was dealing with often, wasn't it? It was, it was Conrad and James, and these are big figures. And she had the confidence to, to wrestle with them. I think it's just because she was always... From reading these essays, you get the idea. She was always just trying and trying and working and working on landing on a true sentence. And I think because of the work she put into that, that in itself justified, gave her confidence. Mm. To go back to the room of one's own. I mean, I'm not just being facile about it, but maybe the checks helped to give her confidence. It's a real validation. Mm. Mm. I bet we all remember the first time we got paid for a review in the TLS. Yeah. I do, not very much. But the point is that you get paid for it. So someone said, yes, that's... That, that. It's probably about the same amount. It's, probably, it's almost certainly the same amount. Uh, and was it, I mean, I mean, you couldn't live on Could you live on it? Could you live in, in the days of the 30s? Could you live as a reviewer, Michael, do you think, as a way of... It sounds like you could. It sounds like... I mean, she had, she had money, though, didn't she? I think there's been some interesting work on this and how, in a sense, people could live this way. Not necessarily very well, but certainly if these are the works of the left hand and with your other hand you're hoping to write your great novel, yeah. it is viable, certainly more viable than it is now for all the reasons with which I think we're familiar. Is there a feminist tinge to these writings? It's notable that she's writing about often great female figures, you know, there's Bronte, there's there's Eliot, there's Elizabeth Browning. Is there a, a sense she's trying to articulate something about the female voice in this or does she just write about the whole range of literature, do you think, with no no discrimination? I think the latter. She's she is as hard and fair and generous on all of her subjects quite equally. I, I'm not sure there is that sort of feminism that we'd recognise today in here. Do you think people want to see that in her? That you know, this is a her championing female voice. She's doing it at a time where at least you know. As famously, the TLS used to have more clerics writing for it than women. Mm. Um, they don't seem very political from what I, I've read these days. Is that fair, do you think? Is she ever making an argument, a broader argument, than just responding to the text? I think she's sometimes making a... Br- I'd almost say she's more spiritual than political. I think she's sometimes making yeah, a broader argument for the human soul, if that's not too grand a statement than she is for kind of worldly, everyday, changing political subjects and it probably isn't too grand a statement is it michael because that's presumably she she believed passionately in the importance of what she's doing the importance of literature she probably probably make claims for its soul its soulfulness yeah yeah I, i think so she's writing as somebody who's absolutely dedicated her life to it who was sort of destined from the age of five by her family to to be a writer in some sense who you know was the only 
formal education she really had with uh, well there may be, there are other elements but she basically got herself lessons in Greek at King's College London um, she had the run of her father's library obviously and the circle she's gathering around her are people who are going to sit and talk about books with her so it's a sense that yeah this is absolutely the world you know the the foundation stone I think for her and that's maybe why you get that um, kind of equal opportunities brilliance it's really interesting to read her I think on um, female forebears as novelists you know George Eliot obviously um, and uh, Charlotte Bronte I think the piece in in this book Genius and Ink about um, Aurora Lee um, is is abs- it's an absolute knockout. It's incredible, and when it comes to dealing with the you know the social side, the circumstances of Elizabeth Barrett Browning's life and how that shapes the work, that's that's vital. But then she can write equally well about anyone. It's absolutely wonderful to read. And if you go scattering through the archives, you find more and more of it. It's astonishing. And she's a sort of great enthusiast, isn't mm. she? I don't mean she doesn't like everything. She's no. she's pretty. She's uh, well, very you know discerning uh, and can be. Uh, Stern. Well, there's that great line about my real delight in reviewing is to say nasty things, <laughs> yes. isn't there? But actually, it's good, isn't it? It's good fun. I think a lot of us have felt that. Yeah, but, we need a bit more of that, I keep but, saying. But they, I think there's... The there's, general thing. Sorry, yeah. No, no, I just was just going to say that you, the general feeling you get is that, yeah, as you say, she cares about it so deeply mm. that she makes you think, yes, we do have to do this. That and that's, me, that's a great enthusiasm. Can I quote a bit about this from the book? Um, an essay she wrote on, on Montaigne it is not fame that he wants. It's not that men shall quote him in years to come. He's setting up no statue in the marketplace. He wishes only to communicate his soul. Communication is health. Communication is truth. Communication is happiness. To share is our duty. To go down boldly and bring up to daylight the most hidden thoughts which are the most diseased. To conceal nothing. To pretend nothing. If we are ignorant, to say so. If we love our friends, to let them know it. I mean, that's a manifesto for living, isn't it? Isn't it? it? Yeah. And that—that's what I mean about about you know she's she's making these incredibly grand statements yeah. mm. in what are essentially book reviews, and she and she pulls it off every time. And the real world matters to her, Michael, doesn't it? That sometimes, time, you know, the, the idea there's nothing outside the text is not something that she agrees with. That, you know, I was very strict with the George Eliot piece. She really begins and ends with wrestling with George Eliot's status as a woman, as an equine-looking woman uh, that sort of still stares out of the page, her position in life, and then how that is transmuted into the fiction. She, she kind of has this sort of new historicism. She cares about the circumstances of the writers. Yeah, it's almost as if they, they, they've uh, stolen that trick from her, isn't it? That she, she thinks you can only understand the work through knowing um, how it came about, you know, Montaigne's circumstances, or George Eliot's, you know, woman writing as a man. And here is Virginia Woolf writing anonymously and having the discipline to do it week in, week out in this incredible way. How nostalgic are we being about this? Do we think that, you know, this is a writer writing book reviews who turns out to be the great one of the great writers of the 20th century... In 50 years' time, I'm not saying necessarily about the TLS, but do we always look back? I've, I've said this to you before, I think, Michael, that you know, in the 1960s you could have Nabokov writing and you'd be like, amazing, we have Anthony Burgess or you could have Iris Murdoch or, and they feel like how amazing to have these great figures writing normal journalism. And so is that rosy-tinted glasses looking back and in 50 years' time do we think that the same thing will be happening or was there really a kind of golden age? Because she's moving in some circles and talking about writers that have just died, you know, Hardy and James and Conrad. There feels like there are moments where 
there's a peak of talent. What would you think? Well, say? in in um in I'm not going to keep quote, quote, yeah. <laughs> it's really long yeah. but in how it strikes a contemporary which is one of the s's in the book she says almost exactly what what you were just saying she's just like this age is um meager in terms of critics we're on the verge of destitution um and how will everyone judge these books in 100 years they'll probably forget them all there are no good critics yeah she says it very well but are they good are they but are they great authors i mean are there great author critics because there's a period obviously where you could have virginia wolf writing Criticism. You could have Tom Hart, Thomas Hardy writing stuff. I mean, do you, do you look back and think that there was a golden age, or is it just that's just the, the way that the, the world? I mean, cumulatively, I think you get the sense. Um, I think they speak to one another very, very nicely. But then I would say that because it helped choose them. But um, you know, she's very concerned with what I'm calling, you know, the canon or, or, or the classics. But how they speak to um, contemporaries, you know, and and how you read contemporary books is partly shaped by how much you've read of the past. You know, an yeah. expert reviewer needs, obviously, to be able to say this is something new or this is exactly the same as the last umpteen adventure books or whatever it is. And she's not a snob about, you know, reading different genres. She's obviously really interested in biography. She's really interested in adventure. But she's also really interested in what Henry James is doing. Um, so she is a kind of literary um, adventurer. And wherever, I, I, you know, you could say there's a kind of golden age um, from our point of view or from hers, I think one thing that's this book would possibly um, be able to testify to is that this is the making of the TLS. Is that it's not so much about what this paper, could, what Bruce Richmond did for her. Yeah. It's that this was a very new paper finding its voice, mm. and the proprietor at the time wasn't above, you know, shutting it down. It was a small, relatively small thing. Yeah. Um, he it could easily have gone, couldn't it? Within mm. ten years. I mean, the, the average lifespan of literary journals is not massive. So, uh, in a way, giving her the space to do this incredible thing week in week out, it's a more important relationship for the paper than some of the other, you know, well known now well known writers like T. S. Eliot. That's Virginia. Virginia Woolf, Genius in Ink, Virginia Woolf on How to Read, and Lee Child the Hero. The first two books in a brand new imprint called TLS Books, and we have five next year. We have five next year. Which we won't talk about specifically, but five equally interesting books as well. Um, Rosdenine, Michael Keynes, thank you very much indeed. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Virginia Woolf wrote a centennial essay for the TLS about George Eliot and noted one cannot escape the conviction that the long, heavy face with its expression of serious and sullen and almost equine power has stamped itself depressingly upon the minds of people who remember George Eliot so that it looks out upon them from her pages. Henry James, for example, called Eliot magnificently ugly, deliciously hideous. In fact, it's hard to think of another writer so famous for both greatness and a, a sort of unnecessary assessment of her looks in the way that Eliot has been. Lena Dunham once called Eliot's Wikipedia page the soapiest, most scandalous thing you'll read this month. Thesis, she was ugly and horny. There you go. But as we now reach the bicentennial of her birth, the greatness at least remains undisputed. Wolfe's essay ends with an injunction to lay upon her grave whatever we have in our power to bestow of laurel and rose. So we're doing that in the TLS this week, including with a lecture from Rosemary Ashton on the subject of, appropriately enough, coming to conclusions. She's with us now in the studio. Rosemary, hello. Hello. It is amazing how many people, including Wolfe and James, and there's lots of other contemporaries, they kept harking back to to Eliot's appearance. It's, it's a strange thing, isn't it? Well, it is a strange thing in a way. It's a bit unkind, actually. Henry James is very, very... I've, I've looked into this. Uh, he's very uh, ambivalent about it. When he writes, he's writing back to his parents when he first meets her. And she's a great author, and he's just the young American going along to... to pay obeisance to her on her Sunday afternoon reception. Um, and he's writing back to his parents and he's actually very, very keen to show to his parents that he's meeting all the great people in London. Um, his father is financing his trip and is always asking him why he's spending so much money. <laughs> and so he wants to show that he's become part of the London literati. And one way of doing this is to make sure he sees George Eliot and then writes a long, long letter back home to Boston to his parents, explaining and describing. Um, but James is already... He wants to be a writer. He's not yet a writer. He's a young man in his mid-twenties. He wants to be a writer. This is in 1869 when he first visits um, George Eliot and Lewis in their house, the Priory, in Regent's Park. And he wants to be a great writer. So he sort of, and he wants to impress his parents, well, also with his writing ability. So he sort of puts himself on a pedestal vis-a-vis uh, -vis her, while yeah. at the same time expressing his, you know, bowing and scraping to this great genius. So actually, he's doing a kind of naughty, double-edged thing. She's magnificent but ugly. Yeah. She's you know, not very forthcoming and yet her voice is very musical and she does. he does that kind of on the one hand this, yeah. on the other hand the very other, um, all the way through his description of her. That sounds like a very Jamesian thing of course yes. to, uh, uh, to do. Uh, your piece is about George Eliot's conclusions. Yes. And that has two, two meanings. Yes, that's right. Um, it's obvious that, that you can come to conclusions, i.e. moral or intellectual conclusions, uh, decisions uh, uh, after an analysis. And we know that George Eliot was a great analytical writer, philosophical writer. In fact, sometimes she's been rather uh, downgraded from uh, being a, a popular and great writer yeah. because she's thought to be too serious. There's some of the things you quoted about her long, serious yeah. face. Not just does she not look very attractive and feminine and so on, but she's a serious, sombre writer. Kind of an anti-Dickens in, in a Anti-Dickens, and of course it's not true. I mean, she was a serious writer, but she was also a very amusing and witty writer, and she managed to do 
both things. Um, but she does like to come to conclusions about human nature. She observes human nature and she has a view on it and how people behave. So that's that kind of coming to conclusions when she asks... What do we make of Maggie Tulliver, for example, in Mill on the Floss when she goes off, as it were, eloping with her lovely cousin Lucy's uh, fiancé? And, and it appears that they've eloped and it appears that she's a lost, fallen woman and so on. It's not entirely like that, but in fact she has um, fallen for this young man and found herself in a trance going off on a boat down the River Floss and then she decides to come back. But George Eliot likes to show you that... Um, it's not unusual or it's not impossible for a young woman who also loves someone else, Philip Wakeham, um, to be in love with two people at the same time and yet not, you know, not, not to be immoral or hypocritical or any of those things. And so she, her judgments, if you like, and this is what interests me about her judgments, is that they are not the, ki- not the kind of judgment that actually Dickens will offer you. Yeah, and yet she's known as a moralist. I mean, she's people always say, oh, God, George Eliot's a moralist. Yes, she, she is, but she's much more open-minded and tolerant yeah. um, moralist. And you say in your piece that she very much has the possibility of at least two things, two contradictory things, being able to hold them in your mind and hold them both as, uh, as true, yes. which seems to me to be a very modern position, well, actually. It, it, and, and as you say, not actually not at all like Dickens, who says, there's a goodie, there's, there's a baddie. There's a baddie, yes, and we're going to give them their just desserts, yes. you know, so the yeah. goodies will, will succeed and the baddies will not. As Jane Austen had also done, actually. Yeah. She does mm. it very openly in Mansfield Park. She says right at the end, well, I've had enough of this, you know. I'm going to finish. I'm going to give those um, who've, who've yeah. not been too much in error or in, uh, you know, I'm going to give them their, their, their um, desserts, really. Mm. And we're therefore talking about other conclusion it's interesting in, in Northanger Abbey she talks about the telltale compression of pages as we're hastening yes. towards felicity the idea that the book has a shape and there's often a, a yes. clear-cut ending Henry James said the whole of anything is never told you can only take what groups together and often yes. his endings aren't quite as conclusive no. as Austin or Dickens Eliot's more like that isn't it yes. there's less of a wrapping up because life is never wrapped up yes that's right and that relates to her um, view which we know from her she was a, an extraordinarily good literary critic before she started writing novels and we know from her um, the best of her articles in the Westminster Review that she believed in realism and she believed that novels should not be a matter of escapism and that it's not a moral ending to have the good always survive and flourish and the bad be punished because life doesn't do that to people and so that's why she that's why her conclusions are very much a much more delicate balanced Mm. uh, sort of conclusion than some of the other writers. You also say that quite often she she has a little bit afterwards. So there's there's what we think is the ending and then she comes back and says, well, let's have a think about this. Or Yes, she does that. I mean, uh, and that I think she can do that because all her novels, apart from the last one, Daniel Deronda, which is extraordinary in many and modern in many ways, even more so than her other novels, but all of the other novels are set back in time. So they're yeah. historical novels, not all like Romola way back into Renaissance Italy, uh, which is not her greatest success. I want to success. talk about that I read it this year. It's not her greatest success. No one likes it. I'm very proud because he's read it. Do you know what? I, I read <laughs> it and I, me- I mentioned it to TLS people, yes. they never admit to not reading, not having no, read something, not having read it, and no. no one had read it. No. And one of them said, "I've read. Of course, I've read Romola." And then yeah. came back ten minutes later, and went, 
No, I meant Daniel Deronda. <laughs> yes, yes. Because uh, it's a historical novel. Yes. Is it a lost classic, do you think? It um, has its moments, doesn't it? There's some beautiful well, moments. It's got some beautiful moments. And what, and if you want to see how George Eliot deals with the um, elucidation of motivation and character and the difficulties of coming to decisions and conclusions about a person's character, read Romola for the young man Tito Malema, who's yeah. the, the Greek who comes. He's got nothing. He's well-meaning. He's handsome. He's good-looking. And he's so sort of slides. She shows him sliding into... And he's not Ill. a proper baddie, therefore, he's is he? He's not a baddie, no. but he ends up compromising himself but and not an, being able to get back from it. But there's an issue in Romola, isn't there, where she was so desperate for realism that the, the whole of the of the book is thickened by this endless quest for accurate yeah. detail to make sure yes. the calendar is exact. Do you think that's an issue with her book? Because it seems to me that realism, more than moralism, is kind yes. of a good governing factor in, in the work. Well, it is, and the dangers of realism are that you merely simply, um, you know, write out reams and reams of it was like this, it was like that, it looked like the other. Actually, her partner G.H. Lewis, who was also a good critic, has a word for that, which is coat and waistcoat realism. <laughs> and he says, it's not what we want. Yeah. We're not after just um, endless descriptions not going anywhere. We want a kind of realism of psychology, for example, and of, but also of context. And I think the only one, I mean, I think that she succeeds with setting her characters into their historical context because all the English-based novels are set back uh, to either 1800, Adam Bede, or around about 1830, Middlemarch, Felix Holt, and so on, when she was a young woman, yeah. and when, or a girl rather, and growing up in the Midlands, and where she will actually look at um, her own history. But also, she read. She sat in the reading room of the British Museum and, and read widely on... Um, the Reform Act and, and yeah. the Lancet, the new uh, medical journal, the Lancet for Middlemarch and so on. But she also, of course, read for Romola. And her reading for Romola unfortunately gets into the book too it much. It strangles her, doesn't it? It gets you, into you the can, book. You can see it in this. Yeah. At the beginning particularly, because at one level the setup of Rommel, it's set in Savonola's Florence. Yes. And at one point you, you, you think this could be a Dumas-style romp where there's a kind of, a father returns and he's been wrongfully enslaved and there's sort of there's sort of quite adventurous. You like Dumas, don't you? This is not like that, though. Cause it, cause no. it, 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 she pulls back from that, doesn't she? Yeah, she does, because that, I mean, that's, I hate to say it, but it's adventure painting by numbers, yeah, isn't it? You, mean, is you can see a mile away that this young woman is going to be abused by the count or whoever yeah. it may be. And you just know what's mm. going to happen. And whereas she does not do that. I mean, she doesn't stoop, if you like, no, no, to no, that. But but she does. I mean, it was Henry James, of course, again, in one of his um, sharp sharp moments, said in one of his, in his review of Romola, in fact, that it smells of the lamp. Not have any non-sharp moments because everything, everything we've quoted him as saying has been. He was constantly trying to elbow his way in, wasn't yes, he? I well, that he was, was it, you see. That yeah, and if you do that. read his letter to his parents after meeting George Eliot for the first time, you see that he's motivated. He's motivated by his own extreme, extremely strong desire to make it as a writer himself. And he was one of those people. I mean, he was he was dossing around. Actually, yeah. you wouldn't think that of Henry James, but you know, he'd given up university. He hadn't. He was going to do law and that didn't do and so on and so he didn't have a job he didn't have a profession his parents were a bit disappointed and yeah. so he was busy trying to muscle in and then of course he was clever undoubtedly uh, and you could see he had some uh, valid points to make about Middlemarch about George Eliot about other writers Balzac and so on he's terrific um, but at the same time he's motivated sometimes by jealousy or envy and sometimes by mm, 
a kind of sardonic negativism, a desire to to put these great people sort of in a corner, in a yeah. box, in some way. Because also it took him a while to get going. So if you it think did. that, he, when was his first great big novel? I mean, Portrait of a Lady's really middle. He's been at it for a while. He's been it? at it for a while, but and that's the a, first successful one, yeah, relatively yeah, successful. Yeah, and his one. early ones are a bit footling in, in, yeah. in, in some respects. So you could probably imagine him thinking, I feel great. Yes, that's <laughs> right. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not quite great. You, and when you read Portrait of a Lady, who do you see um, looming behind it? You see George Eliot. <laughs> because yeah. it borrows such a lot from Daniel Deronda in particular, where the young woman is preyed upon yeah. by a rather opaque, mm. cruel man. As, yeah. is, as happens to Gwendolyn in, in and you uh, think a, Toronto. And I wonder how much he would have... Did he acknowledge the debt? Well, he didn't do... He wouldn't, wouldn't would he? No. Or uh, <laughs> Not directly. Or at least I always feel as a, as a biographer, I always feel you have to be very careful. You can't say so-and-so never said or never wrote something. We simply don't have any yeah, evidence that's, that's, that you That's very reasonable. <laughs> it's 200 years... Um, of Elliot, so this is going to be a big month yes, of Elliot. Yes, which is good. And you'll be talking about it a lot, talking about her a lot. Where do you feel she is now? What's the? Funny if I was asked to do this thing on the BBC of hundred novels that shaped our world, yes. which was about very personal decisions. It wasn't the world; it was sort of individuals' world. But Middlemarch yes. did get on it in a yes. way that some classic novels didn't. Yes. Do you think we're coming? Virginia Woolf was writing a hundred years ago. Yes. We're now two hundred years since the birth. Where is Elliot now, the standing of her, do you think? Well, her standing is very high, I think. And yeah. and, and I think, I, I certainly, um, how, how would we know that? Well, we know it partly through university syllabuses, really. I mean, she is there, you know, in spite of the fact that these days we're told students don't read long books and you can't set long books. Um, undoubtedly, Middlemarch is there on most English department syllabuses. Yeah. I certainly taught it for nearly 40 years, uh, very happily. And students very happily read it. That's the other thing. Um, but you also find you find that um, the general um, so the, the laity, as it were, not professional yeah. academics, but but an educated laity always turns to Middlemarch. They do turn to George, but Middlemarch rather specifically, rather than George Eliot generally. I think. Well, I think that's an interesting point. That it, I was trying to think: is there another novelist for whom there is? who wrote prolifically and well, yeah. or semi-prolifically and well, yeah. for whom there is one, one novel. Yeah. Because the laity, as you say, yeah. will have read Middlemarch. Yes. How many of them will have read Mill on the Floss? None of them will have read Romulo, as we've discussed. But, I no. mean, they, they wouldn't have read Anne Bede either, which is, a, which is her first novel and is remarkable for a first novel. But they might have read Mill on the Floss because it tends to be a GCSE text. Lisa, <laughs> you know? what have you read of, what have you read Did of you? Mm. Mill on the Floss, yes. I think, and Middlemarch and yeah. Daniel yes. Deronda, which I remember taking me... I read it a long time ago. Yeah. Yes. But, but, but Middlemarch seems to stand above everything, it, doesn't it? It does. It's, That's partly because people like Henry James acknowledged, however slightly grudgingly, that it... Well, he said it put a limit on the 19th century uh, English novel. And, of course, that in itself could be read two ways. Yes. You know? Oh, is she at the end of an, a dying old... Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. um, um, a nail in the coffin. Yes. Or is she right up at the top yeah. and, and nobody can go any but higher? A lot of people would say it is the greatest yeah. Victorian well, well, I would say so, and would a lot you? of people would say so. Yeah. In fact, <laughs> I couldn't remember. Last year, I, I, I because I'd been working towards various events for this um, bicentenary, um, I've been collecting uh, uh, praise of George Eliot or comments on George Eliot. So, as you probably know, the Saturday Guardian has a, a writer um, talking about the books that made me, yeah. and you know, and Middlemarch comes in there quite a bit. 
I don't know if I should say this, but Salman Rushdie actually said that it was the book, no, the book that he couldn't finish. And I thought, well, crikey, you know, (laughs) how can the author of Midnight's Children of all books say he couldn't get through Middlemarch? However, but most, a lot of them do say Middlemarch is the very one that that they um, uh, find wonderful. Thomas Keneally told the Sunday Times a few years ago, that he thought it, Middlemarch was the greatest novel of all time about human relationships. Yeah. And it had never been outthought and outwritten, is what he wrote. There are people do still read lots of Dickens, but with Middlemarch there is a difference where you feel like you are in touch with another consciousness. Yeah. Like. Do you know what I mean? With yes. Dickens there's so many there's so many characters and yes. fantastic things to enjoy, but Middlemarch you feel like you have really sort of almost made contact yes well you've, with you've in both of them you've entered a world but in Dickens's world a lot of the characters um and I'm not going to go straight for the idea that they're caricatures mm-hmm. but they are not seen in the round to use the E.M. Forster's phrase they're not seen into no. the only yep. characters he gets into the heart, head and heart of are his young men a pip in Great Expectation David Copperfield, David Copperfield yeah. and so on he doesn't try with the others they're, they come on and they're set pieces yeah. that's how they will the be sort of theme park approach yes a bit. that's how they will be from beginning to end yeah. whereas with George Eliot she really really if she doesn't actually get inside the head and heart of every character even the minor ones on the periphery of a large panoramic scale like Middlemarch she will she you know that she could yeah. well Rosemary, I challenge anyone to listen to you talking about Georgia and not want to go off and and, and, and read so I'm gonna go and reread Middlemarch uh, I think Rosemary Ashton thank you very much indeed a pleasure The story is one that has no borders and is as ancient as dirt. We're not talking about Legends of Greece or Gilgamesh or Camelot. We're talking about the boss, not Stig in this case, but the boss of us all, Bruce Springsteen. Yes. He released a film last month, Western Stars, to go with his album of the same name. And this, along with his autobiography and the related Broadway show, looks a lot like someone looking back and defining his legacy. Karen Rose writes about him for us this week, reviewing a book of essays and Western Stars itself. Karen, many thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Um, Can you tell us about this essay collection, Long Walk Home, and particularly about um, what sort of contributors it's got? This collection is compiled by an editor, June Skinner-Sawyers, who's done a few essay books on Bruce. Their thesis was... The best people to to determine the impact of Bruce Springsteen were the fans, were his audience. So there's a lot of personal experience. They they do say in the introduction that deadlines prevented them from getting a more diverse uh, <coughs> pool of contributors. Do you buy that? Do you buy that? That's deadlines. That's an unusual excuse, isn't it? I buy it as somebody who understands deadlines, but I think it's a weak excuse. I think that they were trying to tie it to his 70th birthday, and that's not a deadline that moves. But but, but Um, women are as available as men to a certain extent, aren't they? I mean, it's not... Absolutely. I I think that if they needed to get more people, there are certainly many, many more people that write about Bruce Springsteen than the individuals that are represented in the book. And and they also, like, ran a very old Grail Marcus piece, which 
great. Grail Marcus is one of the great thinkers about popular music, but there was probably somebody who isn't as well known, but is as thoughtful that would have been available and delighted to contribute. Is he seen as very male? Because at one level he's seen as very blue collar, but is he seen as someone who is a man's man, rightly or wrongly? Is that a sort of cliche about him? I do think that that is definitely the cliche in America. I know that I find his his audience in Europe and the UK to be have more women in it, and a young and it skews younger. But definitely in the U.S., people think of him as yes, as the man's man. Um, so many people were incredibly. When I say people, I mean old white men were very crabby when his you know when he when he married patty scalfa and had her in the band and you know my take on that is they go to see bruce to relive their youth and having the wife on stage doesn't let them do that yeah. there's even a song about that glory days isn't that a springsteen song where he talks about men looking back on their time when they were athletes and they they got all the girls and and there's a sort of hint of nostalgia about that all yes yes absolutely but there's also a couple of contributors that you mention, uh, a racial ju- justice activist and someone um, writing about being a, a Springsteen fan as, a, as she defines as a queer woman. And they have very different perspectives, don't they? Yes. And they, they, I'm so disappointed that since they made the bold step of finding these contributors that they couldn't find more. There was actually another essay written by an LGBTQ Springsteen fan that came out in the States uh, last week. And, you know, there's the the perspective is it just broadened your appreciation of his music and his contribution. Every time you can see it through a new lens, again, it shows that there's just there's no shortage of voices that are not old straight white men. He's struggled a bit, hasn't he, in the sense that he's seen to represent this blue collar mid-state type of perspective but he's he's a liberal man and therefore his audience might be sort of pro-trump um uh, fans and he's very much not that and there's been a tension between him and his audience to a certain extent he confronts us about i think a bit in his book that he doesn't quite know he doesn't want to he wants to speak in the voice of some of his fans but he doesn't necessarily agree with where they're going politically so i think that if you've listened to his music since he started and you somehow thought he was on your side when I say your side I mean a Trump supporter I I would say there's there's definitely some cognitive dissonance going on there (laughs) yeah um when he supported John Kerry you know he talked about how somebody sent mailed his entire album collection back to him and you know there's definitely fans of his politicians uh chris christie you know has seen over 150 springsteen shows they're seeing in it um what they want to see in it i remember there was an article about chris christie where they talk about you know bruce says nobody wins unless everybody wins but he's not really thinking about this in the right way (laughs) and it's pretty clear the the statement's pretty clear i don't know how you can find any shades of grey there. But look aboard in the USA, that's that's often used at rallies as a sort of patriotic hymn to kind of Republican market forces. And of course that's not what the song's about at all. It's not a it's not a, a hymn to the greatness of the America. It's an investigation into it, isn't it? Several people yesterday were talking it was Veterans Day here in the States 
and there were various parades to celebrate our veterans. And the reports of how many of these parades were using Born in the USA was, you know, and uh, you know, every every political cycle, I start saying, could somebody hand out a lyric sheet? <laughs> could could we just could we just like have a glance at? I mean, you know, this goes back to to Ronald Reagan, Ms. Yeah, I remember that. Bruce. Um, there's an evergreen essay I can write about this and just change the names of the politicians. Yes, the various misinterpretations. But as you say, what Natalie Adler says in, in, in her essay, she's talking about Born to Run, that spoke to a lot of people. Born to Run for all sorts of reasons. I've got to get out of here because, you know, I'm not accepted in the community or because... Comes you know, like I need us. To, yeah, exactly. And that, that's what she says. So, and that's, that's it, some of his genius in a way, isn't it? That, that actually he is so identifiable. Yes, and I think that that's something he absolutely aims for. You know, he, he talks about this at the end of the Broadway show that he hopes that his mission has been to tell everybody's stories and that he hopes that he's done that. And I think when he's saying that, I hope he's. I think he's saying, I hope you see yourself in my work because that's what I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, let's hear a bit of Western Stars. We're going to um, listen to some of the lines that you quote in the piece. It's a lovely um, Springsteen vignette. Once I was shot by John Wayne It was towards the end that one scene's brought me a thousand drinks Setting you up and I'll tell it for you, friend So it's a lovely, it's the kind of persona, isn't it, that he's, uh, he's kind of getting people to buy him drinks in a bar. The character in that song is he's, you know, this fading star, not even star, but sort of bit player in Western movies who's you know dining out one of the lines is you know the commercial about the credit card mm, yeah, um, yeah. Um, but musically it, it, you you say um, it's a bit of a departure isn't it it's much more country inflected than he usually is and it's got these big lush arrangements with lots of strings it's not with the E Street Band either is it it's, it's him no yeah it's it's him him and, a, and, and quite a big band um, and you say it's, it's reminiscent of some of the great 60s and 70s American songwriters like Jimmy Webb or Harry Nielsen in fact he does a cover of Rhinestone Cowboy doesn't he which was not written yes, by Jimmy does. Webb but very famously Glenn Campbell did it, which is a that's a bold move. Yes, and I did not know that he had done that when I went to the press preview of the film. At the end, that comes on, and it's like a, I was both delighted and laughing because, like, of course, of course, he would do that. You know, do Wichita Lineman next. Bruce. Like, there's <laughs> there's a long there's a long list here for going in this direction. Yeah, and um, it has to be said that he sounds amazing, especially considering that he's. 70 years old yes he sounds amazing and fantastic and it's a it's a voice he's got a great rock vocal he does have a great soul kind of growl but he's never used this sort of wide open voice before and it's wonderful and astonishing and i wish we had a chance to experience it live Mm. it's interesting this album was released the same day as madonna's new album and there are t- you know, it's an interesting to think about how A, the album's received, the fact this Broadway show he's doing, you know, these are both massive figures from the 80s particularly, but whereas Madonna's album was sort of seen as experimental and not warmly received, this was more warmly received. It's just an interesting that he just seems to be in being embraced even more, ever more tightly 
Yes, I think that the Broadway show and then the end of the last tour where he was just breaking his own records for how long he was playing, it, it was, it, I liken it to Patti Smith's reception after Just Kids. You know, before Just Kids, she had her core group of fans, but then after Just Kids, everyone who read that book suddenly was like, oh, Patti Smith, I should go see her. She's still touring. And, and you had more of the the casual fan, the I like music, but I may not have paid attention to this closely enough for the last 10 or 20 years. Um, and in terms of the film, because the Western Star is not only an album, but it's a film, as we were saying, is it basically a lovely set of performances or or is it is it more than that? Is there a narrative? There's a narrative which was kind of unexpected, at least for me. It's tied together with these beautiful images. You know, Bruce says he wasn't behind the camera, but Tom Zimney definitely knows how to capture beautiful lighting, beautiful images. You could call it, they used to have these things in the 70s and the 80s called electronic press kits in the music business, which was, you know, a VHS with some clips of the artists talking and some live footage. This... This is more than that. It's like the world's um, most expensive and beautifully produced version, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And, and Bruce wanted, you know, he's, he, he stated he's not touring this collection of, of music. It's him just making, you know, he can control, like, this is the message. I'm sending this message out. This is what I want to say about these songs. I don't have to sit for multiple interviews around it. Um, I can say what I want to say about the songs. I can make sure I have the best performance of the songs that I can that I can render. Here we go, Western Stars. Yeah. So so he's it's a closed package. He's he he's giving it to us as is. And um, many thanks for joining us, Karen. I feel it's appropriate here to play out with a moment from his uh, lovely song "Sundown." Wonderful. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Rosemary Ashton, Roz and Michael and Karen Rose. Lucy, it's been a joy. Thank you for having me. Go back to your website. I will. Uh, please, if you do like the TS, go out and get your hands on either a subscription or a real copy of the new design. I do hope you like it and buy all of your family a real book by Virginia Woolf. Next week, we launch the next book in the series, The Hero by Lee Child. And on the podcast, we'll be talking about all sorts of other things too. Thea may even be back if she can be bothered. Until then, from Lucy and from me, goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Confidence starts with loving who you are. 
And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.